Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to Mako's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Kevin Canale, Mako's Policy Associate, and I am joined by a very special guest today, making her Conduit Street Podcast debut, Mako Associate Director Barbara Zektik. Barbara, how are you today? Good, Kevin. How are you? Doing well. Unfortunately, we have to start this podcast with some sad news. As we record here on May 10th, Thursday, uh, Mako is shocked and saddened by the sudden passing of Baltimore County Executive Kevin Kamenetz, who passed away last night. He was a dedicated public servant and a staunch advocate for county governments. Uh, In fact, he is a past president of MACO. He began his career as a prosecutor in the Baltimore City Attorney's Office. He was elected in 1994 to the Baltimore County Council. He served four terms there. And uh, he was also a past president at the Baltimore Metropolitan Council. Again, we are shocked and saddened, and our heartfelt condolences go out to his wife, Jill, his two sons, and the entire Baltimore County community. And Barbara, this is just a huge loss for the state of Maryland. Absolutely. He was a very dedicated public servant. We saw that here at MACO with all the work he did with us and um, just his many decades of working with the county. He really did a tremendous amount of work for the county and the state of Maryland. And um, it really is a loss for all of us. Yeah. And we were fortunate to have him here last year at MACO. And Again, it's just really shocking today as we woke up and heard this news. But again, we just send our condolences to his family, and I don't think there's much more to say. So today on the podcast, since we have Barbara here, we're going to talk about some of her favorite subject areas, procurement, property taxes, and public works. And Barbara, I know you have been very involved in procurement, uh, especially over the past year. So let's talk about procurement and why it's so important to everything that county governments do. Yes, I mean, purchasing is so important for county government's operations. Uh, I think for many years it was kind of pushed aside as sort of a paper-pushing, forgive all of the P alliteration in today's podcast. Yes, yes. (laughs) we like alliteration. (laughs) But it was uh, pushed aside uh, as sort of a paper-pushing type of operation. Um, It has really come to the limelight that there are very creative ways for counties to do their purchasing and government entities to do their purchasing now. And it goes far beyond just saying, okay, what's the cheapest price for these pencils? Uh, You can use procurement to advance your small business enterprise goals, to encourage growth in business sectors that you want to see encouraged. Uh, But most importantly, you can make sure that you're purchasing things in a fair and equitable manner, which is really the whole goal. Right. So so county governments, I mean, we purchase everything from, uh, you know, school supplies to uh, equipment for our 911 centers, right? And I think one of the big goals that you have here at MAKO is to make sure that all of these people are talking, that all of the counties are talking, and that they're able to get together and come up with the best strategies for buying everything that we need and that they can get the best deals, that they're working together. Is that sort of the strategy that we're looking to now sort of to advance purchasing and procurement uh, at the county government level in Maryland? Absolutely. So 
as I mentioned, there's a lot more flexible options than we have looked at in the past in terms of purchasing. Um, and that goes for cooperative purchasing, for pooling together to ensuring that uh, counties can get together to p- purchase things at greater quantities to ensure smaller prices, um, to making sure that the method in which they're doing the procurement is the most strategic and effective. You know, while sometimes it's appropriate to go out and ask for the uh, smallest bid to go with whoever offers whatever the goods or services are at the cheapest price. Sometimes the procurement is a lot more complicated than that. If you're asking someone to design and build a bridge, you may want to procure that in a way where you get to choose the winner based on who makes the design most appropriate, not necessarily the cheapest, right. or who can build it uh, the most effectively or safest. Um, so getting the procurement officers together and seeing more unification among the procurement agencies not only provides the opportunity to do more bulk purchasing, whether that's through piggybacking on other contracts or that's through cooperative purchasing, but it also provides a framework where experts can exchange ideas. In fact, we see a whole lot of uh, councils of governments throughout Mm -hmm. the state that Mm -hmm. work together. Um, And we have a lot of cooperative purchasing going on in regional levels. We have a lot of school systems that work with their counties uh, to do their procurements together. Um, We have just mentioned uh, county executive candidates ran the Baltimore Metropolitan Council. Mm -hmm. They have a very robust cooperative purchasing program, um, as do many of uh, regions throughout the state. This is an opportunity for county procurement officers to all get together. So over the last year, I've been working on getting each county procurement officer to get an opportunity to meet with each other, to speak with each other, and just sometimes vent, sometimes share best practices on what it is they're doing and how they can align those efforts um, to help each other out. Yeah, I think that's so important that this is already happening, but providing them with a venue to to get together and work these issues out that they all have to deal with at county levels is so, so important. So I'm really excited that uh, you're making this push and that you're going to make this happen. And I'm sure that all the purchasers uh, are very excited as well that, number one, you're providing them a venue. Number two, uh, people are taking them seriously and they understand that they're looking around and seeing everyone has these issues as well. And being able to sit down and collaborate, discuss ideas, and come up with solutions that benefit everyone is just so important. And to me, that's what county governments do. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a very big part of it, seeing them as the experts that they really are. You know, I may go, as you know, Kevin, we have a number of affiliate groups. Mm-hmm. You know, our budget and finance officers get together and meet regularly. Our county administrators meet regularly. So it's this isn't a new initiative to bring uh, professionals in a certain area of expertise together in a room. I just think in the past, procurement has kind of been seen as um, – underneath finance, you know, as something that finance officers do. They purchase the pencils among their many other tasks. Um, We're getting to see procurement officers elevated so that they're cabinet-level positions now, uh, and we're really seeing it as a a very, its own discipline in and of itself. It's so important to county government. I mean, purchasing procurement is just so, so important, and I think people don't realize the importance, you know, each and every day that everything we do sort of revolves around procurement because we're using using these things that they're buying. And without them, we're really lost. And again, that's everything from 911 to schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, Procurement makes things go in county governments, if you will. 
Certainly, anytime you have any change, yeah, absolutely, you need to buy new things. Absolutely. You need to buy new services, um, and with technology changing as frequently as it does, that obviously plays a big role in in the ever changing world of procurement. So, if anyone has questions, they can contact you here at Mako. If if someone's listening and they want to make sure that their procurement people are plugged into this effort, uh, they can just reach out to you here at Mako. Absolutely, great, great. So, let's move on uh, to the very important issue as well of public works. And I want to get into a really interesting bill uh, from the 2018 session. This is House Bill 204. And the title of the bill is Traffic Control Signal Monitoring Systems, Yellow Signal Compliance. And the reason I pulled this bill is because I think it's really interesting. So Barbara, tell us about what this bill did and why we cared about the bill, why it mattered to counties and, and how uh, you know we really played a role, I think, in getting the bill to a point where we could at least drop our opposition. Yes, so this was an interesting bill. This bill required at any traffic signal where you had a red light camera, it said that the yellow light had to be on for at least four seconds. Okay, so as someone who's driving around, you and I both know we have red light cameras. We probably loathe them. Uh Um, So that sounds good, right? That sounds good. I want to make sure that I have enough time to get through that yellow light so I don't get a ticket and that there's uniformity across the board. It doesn't sound like a big deal. doesn't sound like a big deal. It sounds like a good thing, right? (laughs) Right. Right. The big deal comes when you look at federal regulation. Ah, that'll get you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that'll get you. So, uh, you know, our public works officials, our engineers in all of our counties, uh, they take the manual of uniform traffic control devices, mm-hmm. the MUTCD, very seriously. The MUTCD, Kevin, is the Bible of engineering. Yes. This it- is the most important document to any traffic engineer, whether they work for the county, the state, or the federal government. And that, the MUTCD comes down from the U.S. Federal Highway Administration, correct? That's correct. Okay, so this is basically a manual on everything there is to know about highways, traffic signals, whatever it is in transportation. This is the Bible for county and state government, municipality government folks who are reading this to a T and they are following it, I'm guessing blindly, right? Yes. Yes. So, yes. Th- so you, this is what they need to do. And what was the problem with this bill? The problem, I'm assuming, is that they put an arbitrary number in the four seconds, and that didn't align with the MUTCD. You got it, okay. Kevin. Okay. You got it. That's right. Uh, the MUTCD lays out very concrete guidance, and it's not guidance. It's We call right. it guidance. This is the law. The issue is, is that it has all of the terms and conditions by which engineers have to make their engineering decisions. Right, right. It's not as simple. As four seconds. That right. sounds no, good. Yes, yes. You know, it depends on the width of the road. It depends on uh, the slope of the road as you're going down to the traffic signal. You got to factor in the speed, obviously, that yes. you're coming at when you're heading over to the traffic signal. And maybe evolving technology, right? Like drive, yes. you know, self driving cars. Which is why they don't put these things in law, but they refer to the MUTCT, which is constantly updated okay. by new technology. Um, so, you know, when Mako comes in on these bills that seem kind of innocuous, right. we're like, oppose, oppose, don't mess with the MUTCD. We really have a team of hundreds of traffic engineers behind us who are pulling their hair out. This is a really big deal it's when you put deal. something in a state law that is not compliant with engineering guidance. 
So what happened? So we opposed the bill. Everybody wants to see uniformity with, with, especially with red light cameras, right? Because I hear people all the time saying, my gosh, you know, at this intersection, I feel like I have 10 seconds, but then when I go down the road, I feel like it's two seconds. Obviously, right. I think that's probably exaggerated, and maybe we feel that way when we're in a rush or whatever. But um, so, so you testified in opposition, and I guess you were able to convey that we shouldn't be uh, screwing with the MUTCD and that, that that document is updated regularly, and we just need to follow those guidelines. And if you put this into law, it's going to just create havoc, right, for our engineers. <laughs> it will, yes. And I don't mean to make light of it, you know, because it really is very important yes, that we, yes. c- we comply with federal law. It's yeah, well, important. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and just to take a step back, the reason this guidance exists in the first place is so that, you know, when you go from state to state or county to county, you know what you're doing when right. you're on the road. Right. Right? This is that thing that says a stop sign looks like a stop sign, you know, and stops octagon. Cecil County from making their stop signs blue right. and Montgomery County from making their stop signs pink, right? right? Like right. there's right. It, there's a purpose in all of that. Right. Um, and there's a purpose in making sure our traffic lights are timed according to engineering standards. So ultimately what they did is they amended the bill so that instead of saying four seconds, they deferred to that God bless the MUTCD and SHA guidance as well. I think a lot of people don't realize the role that our county engineers play in everyday life, right? Like this is one of those things where it seems innocuous, but it's so, so important. And like you said, people are pulling their hair out when they see a bill like this because unintended consequences from the bill would mean that they wouldn't be able to do their job. Absolutely. No, the engineers met about this and talked about it for quite a while. And, you know, they said, you know, it, a lot of it is the principle. A lot of it is the principle mm-hmm. of messing with their, their jobs and the engineering that needs to come into play here. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting about this bill is that um, – the reality is the issue where this came from with the traffic signals being different times, right. that's not because the county engineers set them at different times. Right. There's either equipment malfunctions or there's someone else getting involved or there's something else. So putting in the law four seconds really isn't going to fix the problem, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And, uh, but, you know, that's that's one of those things where it's kind of hard to, to communicate that in a bill hearing. I know that our engineers do a fantastic job, and they stick to the script with the MUTCD. They do. And thankfully, the bill sponsor realized that, and the bill was amended in the House, right? So then we could drop our opposition. That's right. Okay. So these are the kind of things I wanted to highlight this bill because this is a an issue that seems very innocuous, and people would say, why the heck is Barbara in here opposing a bill to make traffic signals uniform so that my constituents aren't getting red light tickets, and then they go down the road and it's completely different? That's not why. It's because of the MUTCD, and these issues pop up all the time, time. and people say, why is MAKO opposing this bill, or why is MAKO supporting that bill? But you really have to dig deep, and there are reasons behind all this stuff, and Mm -hmm. again, it seems innocuous, but it's so important. I mean, the other one that was interesting was uh, Delegate Lamb's bill to come up with a statewide compliance for... um, Plug-in electric vehicle parking. This sure. was House Bill 598, and we saw this previous session as well. I this mean, is the green paint The issue, green paint. Right? The, the, the green paint. The notorious green paint issue. Of course we want to see a statewide 
consistent scheme for plug-in electric vehicles. Of course, we want to be able to enforce when someone parks a non-electric vehicle to the plug-in vehicle space. Of course, we want to do that. But one of the things that Bill said was in order to enforce the law, the counties had, or whoever owned the parking spot had to paint the parking spot green. Right. Well, you know what the MUTCD does not allow? Parking spaces to be painted green. (laughs) So again... So again, it seems innocuous. It seems like, why not just go buy the green paint? <laughs> Whoever makes that green paint is going to make a lot of money. Everybody's happy. Right. But green paint lobby is The green paint lobby is crushing it. But, you know, you're not allowed to do that <laughs> because you have to comply with federal law. So right. it's these little things that get in the way. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that's always interesting. And now, Barbara, there's another interesting issue that we'll talk about today. So after the break, we're going to talk about a specific property tax issue that you and I were talking about earlier today and why it's so important and why it needs to be fixed. We'll get into that after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale back here with Barbara Zektik. And Barbara, you are our resident expert here on tax policy. And let's talk a little bit about property taxes. Uh, let's talk about some legislation from the 2018 session. I know uh, you you had about 10 million bills that you had <laughs> to read this year. It was a little bit ridiculous. But um, what are some of the interesting bills that you uh, feel like are appropriate to talk about today and and make sure that people understand. Sure. Kevin, as you know, we had a very uh, successful session, but it was a really successful session on the tax front. Yes, Um, it was. And there's been a lot of talk about federal tax reform and all the income tax bills that um, came into play that sort of tried to deal with that in some form or fashion at Maryland's level. there were also a slew of property tax bills. There were recreation tax bills. There were emissions and amusement tax bills. There were a lot of tax bills this Okay, session. so first, I know there are a lot of people listening who are probably heading to Google right now to try to figure out exactly what that means. But can oh, you? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> Uh, but can you explain to our listeners exactly what a recreation tax is? Sure. Well, so first of all, most county revenue comes from property taxes. Right. Secondly, it comes from income taxes, right. the piggyback tax off the uh, the state income tax. Um, and then thirdly, there are other revenue sources, and one of those is the recreation tax uh, and transfer taxes mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. These taxes come when property changes hands. Right. So if you buy a house and you go to the clerk of the court and you record the the deed or you record the mortgage, there are taxes you got to pay, and those taxes come to the county. Perfect. So perfect explanation. So let's talk about some property tax bills and recordation, and then we'll also talk about SDAT. Sure. Um, there were a number of bills that de- dealt with property tax credits, first of all, this session, um, that were somewhat problematic. The most problematic one would have changed an existing property tax credit that three counties currently use. Uh, this credit is for elderly citizens, people 65 and older, who have lived in the same house for 40 or more years. 
So I guess the first question is, how do you verify that they've lived in the same house for that many years? Kevin, it's really hard. Yeah, it is hard, right? It's really hard. And the three counties that have done this to date, actually four, it's Harford, Howard, Montgomery, and St. Mary's, Mm -hmm. have had difficulty trying Mm -hmm. to figure out how to verify if the same person, the same owner has owned the house because, you know, people get married, people change their names, people change their business entities. Right. You know, there's sometimes individuals that form LLCs for a number of different reasons. Mm-hmm. They still are owning the home, you know, but it's just owned under a different structure. Um, so verifying whether the person is actually the owner and whether they've actually dwelled there is a very huge undertaking and very difficult. Um, and these counties have had to jump through hoops to figure out how to um, make this tax credit work, but it's important to them, and they've sure. seen a lot of interest in it. So there was a bill this session to change that, mm-hmm. and instead of it being someone who's owned the same house for forty or more years, it would be anyone who's lived within the same county for twenty-five years Ooh. and is older than sixty-five. So first of all, this would be a huge amount of people. Yes, so big fiscal impact. <laughs> huge fiscal impact. And I'll, I'll stress that in both cases, the existing law and with this bill, the tax credit is enabling only. So mm-hmm. counties don't have to do it. But no county would do it. Right. But you know, when I think sometimes people say, oh, it's just enabling. But even if it's just enabling, it puts stress right yes. on county governments. Because when this law is on the books, right. people are knocking on the door saying, why don't we have this tax credit? You can do it right now. So even when something's just enabling, it still puts a lot of pressure on local government. Absolutely. Especially in this particular case where you had four counties that already enabled the mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Um, so without getting into whether they'd have to change their law, whether they could leave it the way it was instead of you know amending it to do with this new law the state had passed, you still have that political issue, right? right? Where you have, okay, you have this tax credit. Now it applies to me because I've lived in Baltimore City for 25 years, even though I've lived in a different house and whatever. Right. Um, it, it's just, it's totally technically utterly infeasible. A mess. A mess. <laughs> it can't be paid for and it can't be done. Okay, so what done. happened with the bill? So the bill did not make it out of the House, but it did pass through the Senate. Hmm. So we were pretty worried about it. Yes. We were pretty worried about it. So that was a big deal for our finance officers. Um, there are a number of other ones that are pretty uh, esoteric. There is a very important bill that uh, the House got very confused about, and I still don't think they know what they passed, but I'm glad they did it. <laughs> As long as you know, I think it's okay. <laughs> uh, but what the bill does is it says for very specific tax increment financing or TIF projects where there's a ground lease mm-hmm. and the property taxes that are come into play through the tax increment financing are through private development on government-owned land. Right. Um, it made it so that they could still make the TIF work there. Uh, and there was an issue in Baltimore County where they had a tax increment financing district, and a TIF district uh, is where they take a loan for the infrastructure development, and they pay back that loan or the bond using the new property taxes that right. come from the new development. So uh, when you do this on government-owned property, it's a little confusing where the tax money is coming from, right? Because it's property taxes and if it's government-owned property. But if it's a private development, there are property taxes, but you can't put a lien on the property because it's government-owned property. This bill closed the loop on that. 
Oh my goodness, they were confused. <laughs> it, it, it is confusing. I will say TIFs are confusing. It, it's very confusing, especially yeah. when it's government-owned property with a private entity developing. Yeah, yeah. And, and even in the Senate, uh, Chair Case Meyer, a brilliant, brilliant man who understands this stuff very well. He's been doing this for a long time, yeah, right? Yeah. Even he, when he got up to introduce bill because he was the sponsor in the Senate, he said, "The people behind this bill told me not to talk about it because I'll get it wrong." So I'm just going to defer to them. <laughs> It's an important bill, and you know it didn't get much movement in the house because they were like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's too confusing. It's too yeah. confusing. But um, but it did get out of the Senate. It did. It did, and it got out of the house as well. And uh, I think we'll have to do some follow up work to explain what the bill does. But right, um, it's it's important. It's small. It's narrow bill. Very um, narrow bill. Um, yeah. But but it's important, and it got out. And so now the follow-up work begins just to make sure that people understand what the bill does, how it applies to them. Again, I will ask anyone who has questions about this bill to contact Barbara, and um, she'll always be willing to help you understand any bill and how it applies to your county. But these issues can get really deep really fast, and thankfully Barbara is super smart, and she (laughs) understands what all these bills do and can explain them to us who don't deal with tax policy on a daily basis. But, um, but yeah, should, I remember that one. It is fun. Well, Michael and I love talking about tax policy because yeah. we're nerds. But <laughs> but when you get this deep, uh, you know, it, it gets it gets confusing, and you're mixing all this stuff together, and it, it can get to be a lot. But thankfully, you 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 got a good head on your shoulders for taxes. Thank you. <laughs> what what else was interesting to you uh, in this area in 2018 session? Well, this is good for counties. Uh, the uh, State Department assessments and taxation came forward with a number of bills this session, uh, mostly cleanup stuff, really, mm-hmm, to clean mm-hmm. up the books and make sure that the law was in line with their actual operations. And they worked very closely with us on these bills, and it was really very much welcomed. Um, yeah, that's been another great uh, great development is our, yeah. our relationship with SDAT, I feel like, over the past year has blossomed, right? I, We're working together on so much now, and that's critical. I know? think that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah I, they're doing a really great job there. Leadership there is very amicable to working with us. Um, and I think they would say the same thing, not to put words in their mouth, but I think we're just a big happy family right now. Yeah, I think that's so, a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, and this was uh, indicative of that good relationship. So they came forward with a departmental bill uh, to clarify that they don't have to physically inspect every single property in the state every three years in order to assess that property for property tax purposes. And so that's important because if you put an addition on your house or if you build a pool and they don't know about it, they're not assessing the property properly, right? So they need to come out and, and take a look at your house and see if you've done anything that they don't know about that would change the value of your property. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it used to be the case where you'd have all these assessors all over the place, just like minions going around looking at every property, or at least in theory, it used to be the case. I don't actually know if this ever actually happened, but the way the law was written and the way uh, it was originally contemplated to work, and these people would go out and look at every property and say, okay, has it changed? Is it the same? How much is it worth? And that's how they figure out the taxes. Well, today we've got surveillance, we've got uh, sophisticated permitting systems, you know, we have a better coordination between the counties and the state about mm-hmm. when those building permits and occupancy permits get issued. Uh, there's enough in play where we don't need bodies on the street to look at every single building. Right. Uh, we have other ways to make sure that we're doing this right. And sure enough, like best practice guidance for assessments does not recommend anymore having bodies on the street doing this physically and nor has frankly the department done that 
in many years, right. frankly, have ever. I right. don't know if they've ever done it that way. So this bill removed that responsibility that they had to have those bodies on the street, but it did specify terms when they did have to do a physical visit inspection, and um, that included when there was a huge renovation mm-hmm. on a property, like you're saying, if somebody put on a new addition, if they got a notice of a building permit from a county that someone had gone in, they had to go in and inspect it then. Um and there were a couple of other instances where, like, if the taxpayer asked for it. Right. That's good. Indicated. And that's important for counties because we depend on that revenue, right? So we right. want to make sure that the property is assessed properly. Right, exactly. So that's a, a good bill, cleanup yeah. bill. Yeah. Well, so we worked with Estet on an amendment, and they were very friendly and worked with us very closely on it, um, that if the county asks and there's been a substantial completion of renovations, um, that Estet go out and inspect the property. Now, what happens now is that under current operations, when SDAT receives the use and occupancy permit, mm-hmm. a copy of or notice that the permit was issued by the county, county issues the use and occupancy permit, SDAT gets that. They say, okay, the renovations must be done. Right. I'm going to go out there and take a look. Uh, well, through no fault of SDATs nor the counties, sometimes a developer will build a big building um, and – won't be able to find tenants for it or won't be planning to have tenants for it or what have you, so mm-hmm. they won't get a use and occupancy permit until months or even years down the road. So they're skipping out on taxes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the county knows it because the counties do have the boots on the ground, right? right? The counties are right there. Uh, they see the building standing there, and yet there's no use and occupancy permit. And nor do they need a use and occupancy permit because it's not used and occupied. Correct. Um, but... The building is substantially complete, and that's the trigger under the law for the new assessment and taxes. Um, so we had the bill amended so that if the county finance officer requests and the building substantially complete, and it's a large scale, we're talking about like property worth a million or more, right. improvements worth a million or more. We're not talking about someone's house. You know, I we're put talking a deck about, on my house, right, and it's not a million dollars. Not you're not worried about that. We don't care right. about that. Right. We we care about the large commercial scale right. buildings. Um, if the county asks that, uh, SDAT will come out within 30 days. It sounds like a win-win. It was a win-win, and they were very kind to work with us on this. Uh, professional, you know, it was just a it was a good working relationship, and That's, this will help the system work better, and it helps our counties out and gets them the tax revenue they deserve. It's excellent. That's excellent. And I know we want to talk about an, another esoteric issue, but I think it's a very interesting issue. Um, and this has to do with taxes. And Barbara, we talked about this earlier. Tell us about this issue that you brought up to me that I just thought was fascinating. So this is crazy. And I just learned about this uh, If a county brings in more property tax revenue than they did the prior year, they have to put a notice in the newspaper that says they're increasing their tax rate. They're not increasing their tax rate. They yielded more revenue because maybe there's more property, maybe the property is worth more, who knows. They got more revenue. Uh, So they actually have to follow this very restrictive law that specifies what the words are in the advertisement, how they advertise it, what papers they put it in, and when they do a public hearing so that citizens could come out and say, don't raise my taxes, which, of course, they're going to do. Yeah, and if I'm an elected official... I don't want that going in the newspaper that I'm raising your taxes when I'm not. So this sounds crazy, right? Bonkers. 
And I'm sure most of the time when this happens, you get citizens, you get taxpayers coming to this hearing saying, don't raise my taxes. Absolutely. And then you have the commissioners or you have the council or whomever saying, we're not raising your taxes. The law just says we had to put that in the paper. And then no one's happy. Right. Citizens not happy. They just lost Wasted their Thursday their night. Yep. <laughs> so what the heck is this? Why, no why hasn't this been addressed before? I have no idea. And it's been on the books for decades. This has been on the books for decades. And it's even so much where... It, it, the wording isn't even correct. I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone out there that originally wrote this law decades ago, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and well. I don't care if I'm offending you. But yeah. uh, I mean, this ad says a public hearing on the proposed real property tax rate increase will be held at this time at this date. It's not a real property tax rate increase. It's crazy. It's just a raised assessable base. And so this has just been around for a while, and you heard about it recently. Yeah. And so this sounds like something we need to address next session. I think we should. Okay. And and again, they're not raising taxes. They're not. I mean, you know, if they want to put out a notice, if, if the General Assembly feels it's important that the public know that they're bringing in more revenue, fine. Right. But at least make sure the notice is correct. Right. Don't tell people you're raising their taxes so they lose their Thursday night. It's exactly. Right. Exactly. And they're, and I'm just looking in, out for their Thursday night. That's right. And they're <laughs> not angry at their elected officials. That's right. That's right. So anything else in taxes that you, you want to talk about today? I mean, you have the floor. This is your big debut uh, as a guest on the Conduit Street Podcast. I'm happy to have you here. And I know that you had a ton going on last session, um, and I want to just give you the venue to speak about anything else that you want our listeners to know. Oh, goodness. I, I would feel bad like I'm going to be boring everyone as much as I find this all fascinating. Well, don't worry. I'll cut you off uh, when it gets too boring. Okay. Well, then let's talk about recordation taxes. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about, a little bit about recordation. Uh, there's, there was a bit of work on recordation taxes this session. Um, one of the bills that I worked very, hardly, very hard on that unfortunately did not um, make it through was a bill to get some counties back some recordation taxes they missed out on, um, which was unfortunate. And we, with our partnership with Estat, we learned about this over the previous year. Um, there are a couple of counties who transferred responsibility for recordation tax collections from the clerk of their courts to their finance departments within the last decade or so. Um, and the reason they did this was it saves them money and, you know, it doesn't it's really government. matter why they did it. It's good government. And for the most part, this worked out fine for the many counties that did this. Mm -hmm. But there were a handful of counties that when this happened, something got lost in the shuffle where the state stopped giving those counties the recordation tax revenues collected by the state. This was actually a very contentious issue during this session. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you may be asking, why would the state be collecting recordation tax issues? I thought you said that it's the clerk of the court that collects them when you record deeds and such. Right. And that is usually the case. But if you have a business entity reformation, if you have a merger or a, a consolidation or something like that where uh, – there's property involved. Technically, the property is changing hands, right? Because right. it's going from one business to another. Mm -hmm. But the way that's actually effectuated is a business goes to SDAT and records their business formation documents. Um, so at that time, SDAT, with all their brilliance, says, Aha, I found you. You're transferring property. They collect the recordation taxes, and they're supposed to remit them to the county. Mm -hmm. And so they send them to the comptroller, who's the tax collector, mm -hmm. the person responsible for remitting taxes. Mm -hmm. And the comptroller sends them out to all the counties based on a strange formula. Mm -hmm. So... 
Baltimore City and Anne Arundel and Caroline and Cecil and Howard just didn't get their money. And we're talking about a lot of money here. We're talking like $10 million. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Um, to smaller counties and even larger counties, that's a lot of money. This is a huge chunk. Yes. This is a huge chunk of change. Right. Um, And so... It, it got it, the only reason the bill didn't pass this year is for political reasons, mm-hmm. um, and and without getting into all of that, we really jumped through hoops, and we had some really great friends in the Senate and the House who helped us out with jumping through those hoops. Right. Um, we had a very intelligent bill sponsor in the House who, unfortunately, for reasons we won't talk about, didn't get the uh, love that maybe she should have mm-hmm. in either House. Um, so when the bill got out of the house it didn't have all the terms we needed in it and when it got to the senate it died completely but then in one of the final days of session uh senators eckert and ferguson brought the bill back from the dead yep uh, totally amended another dead bill that was sitting in budget and tax in their committee um cut the entire bill out of the bill and pasted in our recordation tax fix which was awesome mm-hmm. it was like the holy resurrection of the recordation tax solution. It was a roller coaster ride of emotions, I remember, oh, here at the end of session. I was so emotional. Yes, yes. <laughs> we got the bill out of the Senate unanimously. Right. We got it over to the House. And then the House did the same thing they did to the original bill, which right. was gut all the stuff we needed to pay the counties back. So, um, so it sounds like this is an issue that is going to come up again. And, um And I'm really hopeful, Kevin, we can work with the Comptroller's office and maybe come up with a... Yeah, more unified approach. And I'm sure they don't want this to happen again, but having the unified approach uh, certainly seems like the way to go here. And again, this is a lot of money. This is important. And I think once those counties realized that they were missing out on this revenue, they knew and understood that it was a big deal and they wanted to make sure it doesn't happen again. Oh, yeah. They're invested. Yeah. Those counties want their money. Absolutely. So we will continue to work to make sure they get that money back. But it is an election year. And as you know, weird things happen in an election year. Right. We don't need to get into all that. But hopefully we'll be able to address this issue in the future. That's right. One of my favorite parts about that whole – that whole – Undertaking was when I was explaining the bill to the original bill sponsor. And, you know, it's convoluted. It's right. complicated. Uh, bill sponsor had a intern. She had an intern in her office, a girl, who, eighth grade, like a young, young intern, wow. like a, a, a shadow, mm-hmm. not even an intern, mm-hmm. a shadow, you know, watching her, what she did. And so delegate turns to her. She goes, did, did you understand any of that? And so this eighth grader says, so you're telling me <laughs> the counties were supposed to get the money. They didn't get the money, but they didn't get the money because they didn't say, excuse me, that's my money. So they weren't banging on the door. <laughs> and, then, and so they didn't get their money. I mean, what a brilliant eighth grade student. <laughs> exactly just, what it was. Just to put it on the line like that and say, so you're telling me this is what happened. Sounds simple. Like, why can't we get them their money? Well, unfortunately. It uh, really is that simple. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, other factors come into play. But, yeah, it is simple. It was- and um, it's. It's ridiculous. I couldn't have said it better. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, that eighth grade girl, we need to get her down here to Annapolis, it sounds like, and, and bring her in. Seriously. All right. So thank you, Barbara. I mean, we talked about a lot today with procurement, property taxes, public works. I think uh, some really interesting bills that I wanted to bring up and just explain why county governments care so much about seemingly esoteric issues, but they really are important. They are. They are. And thank you for being with us today. Thanks for listening to my ever so exciting stuff. It is very exciting. (laughs) And uh, I just want to mention to all of our listeners, it is Maryland Podcast Month. 
uh, all through the month of May. Please go to MarylandPodcastMonth.com. Mako and the Conduit Street Podcast is happy to participate. There are a number of participants. So if you're interested in Maryland, not just politics, but sports, gardening, uh, whatever it may be, there's a podcast for you, and it's great that we're doing this cross-promotion to, to get the word out about all the great podcasts that we have here in Maryland. This is Kevin and Barbara signing off. We will talk to you in about two weeks. Have a great day.